Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Back Room. I'm Andy Ostroy. I am so excited for our conversation today with documentary filmmaker Alexandra Pelosi. Alexandra has written, produced, and directed 14 HBO documentaries. She started off her career at NBC News, where she served for a decade as a field producer. In 2000, she was assigned to cover the Bush campaign, which led to her first Emmy Award-winning documentary, Journeys with George. Following future President George W. Bush on the campaign trail. Since then, her HBO films include Friends of God, San Francisco 2.0, Meet the Donors, Outside the Bubble, and Pelosi in the House. Her new film, titled The Insurrectionist Next Door, is on HBO, and it is fantastic. Alexandra, welcome into the back room. Thank you. Happy to be here. It is an honor as someone who has stuck a toe in the documentary world. You are um, someone I look up to and admire as a documentarian. That's adorable. That's totally adorable. How did you feel about your documentary experience? I enjoyed it on one level, and it uh, dragged me down a uh, horrible rabbit hole in another. But it was well worth it, and I did exactly... I mean, you work with the people at HBO, and they're so accommodating and so generous with their input and insights, and they let me make the movie that I wanted to make. How is your daughter? How she? How did she survive having you as her father? <laughs> I'm going to choose to look at the positive, optimistic side of that question. Given the, the hand she was dealt, the very unfortunate hand she was dealt, I think in many ways she is a very lucky kid to have me and her siblings and the big family that we have because that's, that's what got her through these past 16, 17 years. You know, there's a lot of people who never get touched by tragedy, and I was, and my daughter was, and my family was. And then when it happens to you, it just changes your whole purview on everything, you know? The way you look at the world, the way you live your life, everything is different, you know? Absolutely. After my father got attacked, Mm -hmm. it was the most terrible day in the history of my life on Earth, fine. But he did live, Mm -hmm. which was great. We didn't know if he was going to live, but he lived, and that was great. But the hardest part was how people laughed about it, made jokes about it, started conspiracy theory rumors that it was like his gay lover that broke, you know, it was the kinds of things that people said made it so surreal because Mm -hmm. you're like, when is it funny that an 83-year-old man got almost beaten to death, left in a pool of his own blood? in his own home in the middle of the night. Like, when did that become funny? Like, I think I have a pretty good sense of humor, but I just didn't understand how that was funny. And then how it gets used for political fodder, like, that to me Well, the two is... are connected. It, it's funny because it became political fodder, because the president or the former president of the United States made jokes about it. And so he, he's still making jokes he about fed it. The, the, still it, jokes it just was, it was red, it was just another piece of red meat to give to his rapacious base and they ran with it i remember the rallies where he would make jokes about your father and the people behind him are laughing they're laughing like what what kind of sickness are they suffering from when they find that kind of thing funny an old man getting hit in the head with a hammer how is that yeah no it's i never i remember when steve scalise got shot and i remember thinking oh my god this is what this level of political violence in this country this is unacceptable we can't live in a country like this and I've never thought that was funny. Well, you know, I still thought he would have made a very good speaker. I mean, considering, I mean, compared to what? Look at the Joker they got now. I mean, he who knew that Steve Scalise would end up being sort of sane? Right. Well, 
I think what's his name, uh, Johnson, to me is just like straight out of The Handmaid's Tale. So to your point, I didn't quite see Scalise the same way, but he's Handmaid's Tale adjacent, in my opinion. But I think you, your point is speaking to a larger issue, which is there's compassion and empathy and sympathy that these days only seem to be coming from one end of the political spectrum. It's like we're living in, in a world of cruelty now, and the cruelty drives everything. It's, it's tribal. It's almost like a weird religion. It's not even a cult anymore. It's a religion. And that's why your movies, which I want to talk about in a minute, especially the new one, is so fascinating because you get inside the minds of these people, and it's like we can't begin to fathom how these people think. But it starts with the kind of shit you just spoke about, about laughing at an old man getting beaten. So I think it speaks to a, a bigger disease that's in this country today, which you can then project out into all the other areas that we, we can talk about politically, socially, culturally. It's just, we're, we're a mess. As a country, we're a mess. We're an absolute mess. Yeah, it's a real, it's a sad time because, you know, I started my career as an NBC News field producer. Mm -hmm. We called ourselves News Nuns. We went out into the field and we went to, you know, Columbine or Princess Diana was in a car crash, you know, the chasing disasters. But my first film was about George W. Bush when he was running for president. And George W. Bush was the nicest guy. Now, you didn't have to agree with him on anything, but he was the nicest guy. And he had a really good rapport with Democrats. And so I try in my head to trace, since I was on his campaign from the minute he announced till the minute he was sworn in as president, till from that moment till today, I try to trace in my head, when did it all go so toxic? What was the moment that this country turned I mean, you know, I, I obviously think that it was when, you know, President Trump was elected was sort of when everyone stopped. Well, the year, the year before he was, he became president. It started in 15, in my opinion. So it's just, it's just hard to sort of make peace with that because I remember plenty of Republicans and Democrats being friends. You know, it was like the friends after 6 p.m. kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, they all seemed to get along and they all seemed to understand that they were in the same game. You know, so you may be rooting for the 49ers and I'm rooting for the Giants or whatever, however that goes. But we all, it's all the same sport. And they all seem to understand that. There was like a, and then when Trump came along, it was sort of, you know, I'm just going to blow up the whole thing. And then nobody, and nobody got along after that. And it was just strange because I, I can't, it's the civility factor that is just, I, I don't know. It just uh, disappeared it's like in thin air, just like that. It was gone. Like. Hundreds of years of Democrats and Republicans fighting about the issues, for sure. Not agreeing on things, for sure. But always, always respecting each other and respecting each other's views and saying to each other, like, you know, I respect your views. I don't agree with you on any of this, but I respect you and the position you hold and all of that. So mm -hmm. that's what's really I, – I just wonder if we're ever going to go back to a civilized time or if it's just going to be, you know, this sort of Twitter – Kind of governance. Well, it's the kind of thing where, like, when, when did it become popular to side with Russia and Putin? When did it become popular to have a U.S. president stand on a stage with our biggest enemy and knock our intelligence community? Like, all of it is wrapped up in the same craziness. And I, I personally believe that much of the American electorate is not very smart, which is why Donald Trump said, I love the uneducated, because he knows that. And especially if they're siloed 
in their news gathering, right, by watching either Fox or OEN and Newsmax exclusively, they're living in a bubble. So whatever they're being told by Trump and all his henchmen, it's like they're zombies. That's what we have. We have people walking around like zombies who have been radicalized. I mean, you know better than anybody else. You made movies about this shit. People scaling the walls of the U.S. Capitol. How more radicalized can you become if your leader gets you to do that, right? Is it that different than how Hitler riled up the masses in the late 20s and 30s? Um, and so we see all these parallels, but it's just, I don't know. I mean, I, I do, I, I attribute it all to Trump because he awakened the sleeping beast. Racism, anti-Semitism, all of that was always in this country. He didn't invent that shit. But he was like, okay, it's okay to be racist now. It's okay to have white nationalists over to the White House for dinner. It's okay to be cruel. That's, to me, where it started. And, you know, long after Trump is gone, Trumpism is going to be lingering for a long time. So who is your dream candidate? Let's say he goes to jail tomorrow and you can no longer pick Donald Trump. Who could you live with? I think a guy like Adam Kinzinger would be an amazing president. I don't agree with him politically on a lot of issues, but... On the issues that I think are most important today, defending and protecting democracy, aligning with our allies against our enemies, 100%. He and I are on the same page. But I, I think Joe Biden is a great president. I think he's perhaps the most productive first-term president ever and should be reelected. If Biden wasn't in the picture, on the Democratic side, I, I do like a guy like Gavin Newsom. I do like Pete Buttigieg, Gretchen Whitmer, and... Uh, on the Republican side, yeah, there's a small handful, you know. There are normal human beings on the Republican side. We just get drowned out because that's not sexy. What's sexy is Trump and his bullshit and his rallies and the MAGAs and all the lunatics in this country that do the kind of things that <clears throat> make for great Alexandra Pelosi movies. <laughs> well, how do you explain the House? Every single member present voting for the current speaker. Yeah. If there are sane Republicans, explain that to me. Well, Anti-gay, no. anti-choice. I mean, that's what the Republican Party is. It's not just Trump. It's his, the, the House of Representatives is 100% in lockstep with MAGA now. Right. But so, so I was going to ask you that you don't think that's connected to Trump himself. Like if he was to drop dead tomorrow, you think those people would still vote and do things the exact same way? Or are they just living in this perpetual fear of him? Yeah, well, he's a cult of personality, right? And he's got his he's got his hands on the throat, you know, around the neck of all these members. Yeah. So yeah. uh, it would be interesting to see what would happen if he went to jail and then they had to find another path forward. Yeah. Just think about the press conference Mike Johnson gave after he won their speakership and a reporter for ABC asked him about the election denying thing and they all just started booing and yelling and screaming, shut up, like... <laughs> this is where we are. So that should tell you where the next 12 months uh, of the House is going to be. It's going to be a colossal shit show. But, you know, I think it all bodes well for Democrats a year from now. They have a very... Oh, please don't look at the world like that. If that's how it is, that we have to accept we have no, this. We have no choice. I know. I know. It's just... The problem that I have is that, you know, for my work, I go out into what they call real America. And I spend a lot of time interviewing people that live there. And a majority of them really do believe that January 6th was staged just to make Donald Trump look bad. Like people with jobs, with children, with lives, 
say with a straight face they can't wait till Donald Trump gets reelected. So, and we're talking about people that were voting Democrat in the past. Something has happened in this country. I think it's social media. I blame it all on their social media feed. I think I really have to, when I walk into someone's house, I think they're not bad people. They just have a bad social media feed. They're just not, it's rude to say educated, but a lot of them didn't go past high school. And, um, well, you have a daughter that's out of high school. Would you, do you think she knows everything that there is to know about life at her age? I mean, there's a lot more to learn. No, but I do way. know that she thinks I know nothing about life. And she reminds me of that every day. So as most teenagers well, do. You, do you know how, let's, what do you think? Let's evaluate that. Do you think you know something? I. What if everything you know is wrong? What if everything you were told isn't true? What if you just have a bad media feed? What if you just listen to too much MSNBC? And what if you're the one that's brainwashed? What if we're wrong about everything? Here's the See, thing. the problem. We're not. Okay. <laughs> That's this a nice analogy or, or supposition, but we're not. We are intelligent. We're smart. What makes those people who seemingly are normal, sane, productive, logical, rational, and every other part of their lives go, JFK Jr. is alive and he's going to be vice president? I think it has to do with the media diet that they're on. I really think they just get fed some crazy stuff and it's not even Fox News anymore. It is like OAN and Truth Social and all that sort of, there's a whole other reality that mm -hmm. exists. It's like the red pill, blue pill situation. There is a whole other world that exists because I know this because I just made a movie about the people that went to jail for January 6th mm -hmm. and for what they did, they committed crimes. They admitted, they pled guilty to the crimes they committed on the day. And when I went to their homes and I had conversations with them, they would say all of these things that were like a script. And I think, where are they getting this? I don't even know where this is coming from. It's, I don't, maybe I don't watch enough Fox news. Maybe that's where it's coming from. I don't know. But what I found is since then, this is over the past two years that I've been talking to these people, they call me and they say, oh my God, it's a big, you know, big news day. And I'm thinking, I look at my phone. I don't see the news. What are you talking about? And they say, oh, this was just leaked. And they have all kinds of conspiracy theories or facts, whatever you want to call them, that come out in their media mm -hmm. universe mm -hmm. that um, just don't come out in ours. It's a totally different reality. They have completely different news, completely different leaks and takes and and um, and and. I try to explain to them that the rest of the world, it's not in the New York Times, it's not on CNN, it's, it doesn't exist in the quote unquote real world. Mm -hmm. Not that CNN's the real world, because I'm not even sure anybody's watching CNN. But you know, you get what I'm saying. There's like this whole sort of, they have a whole nother um, ecosystem, mm -hmm. uh, news and information that doesn't have anything to do but with the But if CNN world. tomorrow, if you were watching CNN doing the dishes and, and Wolf Blitzer said, Donald Trump's from Jupiter, you'd be like, Wolf, that's ridiculous. The other side would be like, hey, did you hear that Donald Trump is from Jupiter? Like, that's the difference. Like, you, don't you have to be predisposed on some level to believe the bullshit that comes at you? So there is a difference in people. Their side, either through hatred and animosity and racism, or if you want to believe, you know, economic challenges, whatever, pick your poison. They're predisposed to believe this nonsense. That's where we're at. It's not just about abortion. Well, okay, I can have that argument with you for the next 50 years. It'll be a legit argument on both sides. 
JFK Jr. still being alive is not a, a legit argument. That's just conspiracy nonsense. It's just craziness. Well, it's an indictment against the education system in our country. We just don't, we don't have a civics class. Mm -hmm. So if you don't learn anything in school about these things, then you just, you're willing to believe anything that people tell you. And if your God is Sean Hannity or uh, Alex Jones or Glenn Beck or any of those people, I guess they just want to believe. They don't believe in our false idols, whoever that may be, um, Jake Tapper. I mean, who who is the great almighty Wolf Blitzer? I mean, who's our, who are our um, great, who do you believe? Mm -hmm. I don't even believe the New York Times anymore. I mean, just because it's has the worldview that I'm supposed to subscribe to doesn't mean I believe what I read in the paper. Well, how could you believe the New York Times when they had a blaring headline that Israel bombed a, a hospital in Gaza and then had to walk it back and look stupid? Well, I think it's I think it's actually clickbait. I think it's about even at the New York Times, they're not immune to this. Their businesses are dying. Nobody is reading the newspaper anymore. So they need you know, that's why there's so much Taylor Swift every single day. It's just clickbait. And even at the almighty, you know, paper of record, they have headlines that are sensational or misleading, or they have stories that are flat out not even true. And it's all about just trying to get people, you know, hooked to their app or whatever, and just clicking on their stories. And um, I don't know. I think it's really, if we had real journalism in this country, then, see, I had aspirations of being a journalist. I grew up, you know, Woodward and Bernstein, you know, mm -hmm. the movie, okay, not the book, but who are we kidding? But when I was a kid, I saw that movie, just like, oh, I want to be like them. You know, I want to be like Robert Redford, you know? Maybe not Bob Woodward, but I want to be Robert Redford for sure. Like, you know, meeting the parking garage and getting that tip and yeah, that's journalism. Mm -hmm. I had a great holy reverence for journalism. I went to journalism school and I had that whole sort of desire. I, that's why I joined NBC News because mm -hmm. I wanted to be a journalist. And then I realized when I was sitting in my cubicle and the things I'd hear people say, I remember when I, once I said, I'm going to put a camera in my cubicle and just record all the insane things that people say in a newsroom, <laughs> like the amount of misinformation and all of the. And then uh, my mother said to me, I said, I'm going to make a documentary. It's going to just be all the stupid things I hear in the newsroom. And she said, nobody would watch because people don't want to know the truth. If they did, they wouldn't be watching the nightly news, mm -hmm. which is totally true. You know, people, I, I don't know if anybody even watches the nightly news anymore. So maybe this is outdated. But back then, that was when Tom Brokaw, right. the almighty god of mm -hmm. network news, you know, um, we, we worshipped at the shrine of those nightly news anchors. Mm -hmm. And so we didn't want to know that they didn't really know much. We just wanted to believe. But after a decade of working at NBC and realizing, oh, the emperor has no clothes, I thought, oh, documentary, that's where the real truths are. But as you know from having made your own documentary, it's all in the editing. And you have all the power. I had a nickel for every time I said that. Yeah, and, and the funny thing is when I was editing this last film that I just made, my editor, Jeff Bards at, at, at HBO, he's been there for a million years, literally, like the longest working documentary film editor. He did Pumping Iron with Arnold Schwarzenegger. That's how long he's been editing. He would say to me when I would walk in in the morning, I would go out and I would film these January 6th defendants and, and I'd come back and then he would say, okay, who are we going to edit today? Who do we want him to be? Do we want him to be a white supremacist? Do we want him to be 
like a, a, a loving husband? Do we want to be, like we can put sure. this man mm-hmm. on TV and it's only editing. Now he has integrity and is a good editor and he's not going to make anyone look, I, I think he did a really good job making everybody a good representation of themselves. But if you spend a day with anybody, you know this, you can come home and you can say anything you want. What are the takeaways about that person? What was that one line that they said? You could make anyone look like a fool or you could make anyone look like a hero. And mm-hmm. it, it's all in the editing. Life is all in the editing, mm-hmm. right? Isn't that what you experienced from your film? Yeah. You you could not only shape a person's arc, but you can shape the whole narrative. You could take a story and present it in a way that that may or may not be close to the truth, you know? Um, so when you were making that mental transition from news to documentaries, who were the documentarians back then that inspired you that you looked to and said, I want to be like that person? Oh, uh, well, still to this day, John Alpert, mm-hmm. you know, he runs DC TV. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's like the God of all documentary and he's, he teaches young people still to this day, how to make films. He runs this community center downtown and he was just the Holy grail of he had done some work at NBC in his day. And he was just somebody that I thought, oh, wow, a grown up like that. There's another, um, uh, Mark Levin, if you know him, he made a film called Class Divide. He's made a lot of films, but he made a film called Class Divide. He was the, he was the EP he, on my film, Blowback. He was? Yeah. I didn't realize that. I, worked I did not realize that. Mm-hmm. Oh, he is, to me, he's legend. Mm-hmm. Like, he's to me, like, just, ugh. And then the father and the son and the whole um, but he made a film called Class Divide that I think, now, if I could have made that film, I'd be, I would, that would be it for me. Like, there, mm. you know, sometimes you watch a film and you say, that's why I do this work and that's why I want to make films and that's the film I wish I made. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I say that about Mark. He has just amazing. Um, but I could tell you a lot of filmmakers I did not want to be. Mm-hmm. I did never want to be Michael Moore. And I get compared to him a lot because I make political docs and I... I'm offended because my philosophy, when I made the transition, I had, um, so I'd spent a decade at NBC and then I made this, I was on the bus with George Bush and I filmed some moments with my own handheld camera and I went in and I tried to make uh, MSNBC, you know, put it on TV and they didn't want it. They laughed and I said, well, I'll just send it to the film festivals. And then I sent it and didn't get accepted, got rejected. And it was really embarrassing because I said to George Bush, we're going to go to Sundance. And then he's like, we're going to Sundance. So I had all these like trailers of we're going to Sundance and then we didn't get accepted into Sundance. So that was really kind of embarrassing when I had to go tell the president we got rejected to Sundance. I have to think it was the politics. But anyway, um, then um, Sheila Nevins, who was the head of HBO Documentary Films, brought me in and started my career as documentary filmmaker. And now I've made 15 films for HBO. But um, when I was making that transition, when you're asking about that um, Sheila was really sort of, she made every great film there was. Um, But she said to me, your philosophy is when you walk into somebody's house, you're not going to shit on the couch. You are going to walk in. speak for yourself. (laughs) You walk in, you have a nice afternoon with these people, and you go home. Mm -hmm. You're not going to shit on their couch on the way out. That's not who you are. That's the Michael Moore philosophy of like leaving the picture of, you know, in Charlton Heston's home. You know, we're not doing that kind of blow up the house on the way out. We're not doing the mic drop. We're leaving as friends. You're going to leave making friends with everybody. Mm-hmm. You're not going to make enemies. So obviously, uh, Michael Moore's films are 
insanely profitable and explosive and people love them. You know, my, my kids grew up on Michael Moore films. They love them. They can repeat like line. He's hilarious. He's great. And that's great, mm -hmm. but it's not who I am. Right. Right. I'm not going to, I, so I always say that I'm gonna have a party. And I'm gonna invite everybody I ever made a movie with, and they're all going to show up. And to me, it's important that I keep relationships with everybody I made a mm -hmm. film about or everybody who's ever appeared in my film. I have like sort of this huge collection of oddballs of people that have been in my films over the years that I still keep up with. And I ask them their opinions about other films I've made and everything. And what's funny is that in um, 2008, I made a film called Right America Feeling Wronged, which was about Barack Obama was running for president and it was clear he was gonna win. And so the question was, who are all these people that are showing up at Sarah Palin rallies, knowing that they're not gonna win, right? Mm -hmm. Why do they go? Why is she getting such big crowds? And why is everybody so excited about that? So I went and I talked to these people and they were all sane and they all seemed great. They liked John McCain, fine, you like John McCain. And now when I call those people to ask them what they think about what's happening in the political landscape, they'll say things like, J6, they're all political prisoners. Like they've made the arc. They've grown into this, right. you know, MAGA conspiracy. And it cracks mm -hmm. me up because I'm like, wait, you were sane when I knew you in 2008. Like I have a collection of people in Indiana that I always call as like my like moral plumb line. Like, where are we? And then they say these things that I think are so crazy. And I think, how did this happen? You're, you're actually somebody I used as like a, a sage, a Yoda that had mm. some, just because you were Republican and you like John McCain, I still thought you had a great political insight. And now you're telling me that all the Gen Sixers are political prisoners and they should all, Donald Trump should win again so they can all be freed. And I'm thinking, for assaulting police officers. Okay, fine, whatever. So conversation has devolved. But it's just interesting over the course of that time. This was not the answer to your question. You asked me which filmmakers I liked and I decided to take you on a- It's okay, you can, you can take a long time life. to get there. <laughs> think of, yeah, think of your so, answer as like the assembly. You could start with like <laughs> five hours and we'll get it down eventually to, you know, the answer. This is why I'm a behind the cameras person. I'm not in front of the camera. See, I don't know how to edit myself, right? I but need you, but you, Okay, so I want to stick with this for a second because first of all, your, your, your new film, The Insurrectionist Next Door is fantastic. I wanted more. And it got me thinking like, what do I want more? She's interviewing all these fucking lunatics who are responsible in one way or another for January 6th. But the genius of your film is kind of what you just talked about, which is you humanize these people. That was the big takeaway for me, that I got to see in an intimate way who these people are. And some of them were really, really likable. And it's like, they seem kind of normal. But then there's this part of them that's very abnormal that, you, that I still can't explain. And so I was just so deeply involved in their journey with you and also so uh, involved in your journey because the way you bonded, the way you got their trust, the way they interacted with you, they liked you. Not just you liking them, they liked you. It didn't stop you from telling the story, the real story, but it really reinforces what you said before about that intimacy and connection that you make with your subjects when you make not just this film, but any film. So I think it's a great film because it, it exposes a, a dark underbelly of our society that did something really horrible that day and the, the months leading up to it and in the two, two and a half years since. 
And I felt, I mean, I'm the biggest anti-Trumper, anti like I felt something for some of these people. And I was surprised at that. And that's, but that means you did a really good job at, at what you Thank set you. out to do. Well, wow, that was quite, I'm going to put all that on a poster. That was very nice. I should take you on the road with me. You can be my uh, traveling publicist. So mm -hmm. back to my point of that I don't shit on people's couches. Mm -hmm. The people who are in the film have written to me and said, thank you. Thank you for not making me look like a monster. Mm -hmm. I mean, I am a person. I do have kids. I do have, you know, maybe I did something really stupid on that day. But, you know, I've been to jail. I have pled guilty. I have served my time. And in this country, really, that's supposed to be it. If you plead guilty, serve your time, and then you come out. And by the way, these were misdemeanors. So these are people that will be back out and voting in the next election. So mm -hmm. that's why I thought we should be listening to them. We should be having conversations with them because, look, they cared enough to get in their car and drive across the country to go participate in an insurrection. I, I haven't gotten off my couch to go to any political protest. Right now, the world's on fire. I live in Greenwich Village. There's protests every night about what's going on in the Middle East. I haven't even left my front door. So, I mean, this, it takes a certain conviction that they have that I just don't. Maybe I'm just lazy or maybe I just don't um, want to get, I'm just afraid of participating in the political life because I'm afraid it's going to lead to some, some like, after what happened to my father, I'm not so interested in, you know, ending up um, a victim of, you know, whatever the political violence that's, mm -hmm. you know, alive and well in America right now. But so, yeah, I mean, I tried to make friends with these people because I thought they have something they can teach us mm -hmm. about you know, that whole MAGA life that we don't participate in, but that is an, an active part of their lives. And ours. Yeah. I mean, we're stuck I with mean, them. Yeah, we are. And um, I think that some of this, the people in my film have, um, you know, it's a little bit of the banality of evil. You know, they seemed like nice people, but then if you spent too much time with them, you'd think, okay, I don't know if I would spend the night without, um, you know, because what I would do is I'd go to people's houses and stay there. You know, I, I went, I didn't have security. I didn't have a, uh, I, there were three people that my husband came with me because he's like, I don't want you going alone. It seems dangerous. I don't want you spending the night with some like Gen Sixer that's creepy. Um, one of them, I won't tell you which one, after we left, my husband said, if I weren't here, you would have ended up in a vat of acid in his backyard. <laughs> he did have a vat of acid in his backyard and it, it could have happened. Um, but we did have some standards. Like I did have, I did a lot of interviews. There were only probably 10 in this movie. I did a lot more interviews, but I did, there were people, if they said Pizzagate, nope, you're not making the cut. <laughs> if you said Q not, nope, you're not making the cut. Like there were certain... I did have some standards. It wasn't like, let's just hand the microphone to the craziest guy in the room that did the craziest thing on January 6th. I wouldn't talk to anyone who assaulted a cop. Only one man who was in jail, safely in jail for five and a half years. So it's, and he took a plea bargain for that. So as far as I was concerned, like I wasn't going to start because there is a question of where's the line? Mm -hmm. When are you going to let, you know, this man who sings songs like, you know, fuck Joe Biden, what, you're going to hand him the microphone? Like at what point does that become your enabling hate speech. But you see, that guy, it was really fascinating to me, maybe the most fascinating to me. And, and just to backtrack a second, the, the people who are total crazies, the Pizzagate people, they, they're not interesting. They don't make for a good documentary. They're just fucking crazy. And we don't want to hear from them. What we do want to understand, especially those on the other side of the aisle, like me, is the rap guy. Like, He's a complicated human being. I mean, he's a dedicated father. 
seems like a loyal husband. He's artistic. He's talented. He was actually talented. I mean, I like hip-hop. But yet there's this other side of him that's bonkers. Bonkers. And that, to me, is the question that's going to get asked for the next 500 years, is what makes a guy like that be the guy that drives 3,000 miles or whatever and act nuts? And so my biggest question to you is, what did you walk away from this process with about these people? What does make sometimes seemingly very normal people just kind of go bonkers? I think in the heat of the moment, people lose their shit. I, Ronnie Sandlin, who is the guy who assaulted an officer and is in jail for five and a half years, sent me two books from prison. Yes, they have Amazon in prison. He sent me two books, uh, The Crowd and The True Believer, which are two kind of textbooks they read in Psychology 101. And both are just great Bibles of what happens in the heat of the moment and how people get carried away and how if the person next to you is doing it, somehow it becomes okay. And they're all walking in the building and no, there are cops right there and nobody's arresting them. So it seems like it's okay to do, you know, wh where's the line of what's acceptable in society? And I guess it's if the guy next to you is doing it, then it's okay. Mm -hmm. And there's, so I think it's a lot of it has to do with that, but then we can't excuse criminal behavior by saying heat of the moment because prisons are full of people that did things in the heat the moment, mm -hmm. right? right? Mm -hmm. um, I think what's interesting about all of it is that if you go, just take the people in my film, take the criminal code of what they committed, mm -hmm. and then go to the you know hundred page document on the Department of Justice website and take that criminal code and put type it in, find out what the punishments were. So plenty of people walked into the building that day, took a selfie, and walked out. They didn't steal anything. They didn't hurt any officers. They didn't break anything. They just went in. They went out. A lot of them got probation, house arrest, uh, maybe maybe 30 days. Mm -hmm. But the guy who sang Fuck Joe Biden got six months. And that's interesting because the judge didn't like his lyrics. So he got six months in federal penitentiary, the same federal penitentiary that the Unabomber was in. But it was a little more than that, wasn't it? Didn't the, the judge, wasn't the implication that his lyrics incite violence and therefore, you know. Yeah, but he sang them after. He didn't sing them before January 6th. He sang, he sang Nancy didn't like us in her office, but he didn't go into Nancy's office. So he was using it as an artistic, it was an artistic thing. By the way, it was kind of fascinating to see how the little kids also were very liberally singing the lyrics, fuck Joe Biden, like that it was a whole other form of dysfunction for me as a parent, but... Um, but you don't think that if I walked into Washington Square Park right now, I wouldn't hear plenty of people singing fuck Donald Trump? No, but I, I, they might not be at home and five years old, though. You know, they're all sitting around singing fuck Joe Biden. What's your favorite song? Fuck Joe Biden. Like, kid was like six. Another thing I, I, I took away from the film, which is a more macro issue for me, is that it seems like so many of these people really came from broken, dysfunctional, abusive upbringings. That's the, you, you, I feel like this, I, you deserve a door prize. Wow. That was the whole takeaway. Broken America. I kept mm -hmm. saying, this is a mosaic of broken America. I would go on these trips and I would come back and I would tell my editor the story of whoever I was visiting. And he would say, 
This is just a collection of broken people. Mm, this exactly. is That's all it is. We're just making a film about how broken this country is in a way. It has nothing to do with politics. It has to do with every story about, you know, child services and, you know, the kind of people that participated in this all had the com lowest common denominator. And it all had to do with growing up poor, not having an education, not having money for food. Did They, they didn't have opportunities. Mm -hmm. And one was more broken than the next. I'd say the one thing everyone had in common was just how broken they were mm -hmm. down to their core. And that was really, so you win. You got, you got the takeaway of the movie. Thank you. Congratulations. Well, you're welcome. I pay attention when I watch movies. So that, there was one guy in particular, and I'm trying to find his quote, but he basically said at the end, I just don't want to be broken anymore. Yeah. I don't care who That's you the guy are. That made me a cake. Yeah. Oh, right. And it was, I found it so sad. And I got teary because I saw him in that moment, not as a J6er, but just as someone who is close enough to my son's age. And it's like, God, if my son ever felt that way, you know? And I think we have to start seeing each other that way. I know it sounds very kumbaya ish, but I think. Again, it's good documentary filmmaking when you can take a villain. That was the other thing Adrian taught me about movie making. She said, you're always going to make the bad guys likable. Even the bad guys, they all have to be likable. you got to root for everybody. And so you made those guys, those people, rootable, you know? And so it tempers how you view them. And that's all a good documentary should do is say, okay, you come to the table with this mindset right now, watch the next 90 minutes, and maybe I can help change your mindset a little bit, or a lot. Like, I came to the table wanting to understand them as humans, and you did that. You did that well. Thank you. So now we have figured out what we have in common and why we're having this conversation. Because clearly, the film you made, you it was your therapy, basically. You were going and talking to people about your wife, and you were trying to make peace with what had happened, and you, it was all part of your therapy was just trying to understand what had happened to you and your family. And mm -hmm. and so your film was therapy. It was a replacement for therapy. And so that's what it was for me, too, because I was in the building on January 6th, and mm -hmm. I saw those people. Mm -hmm. I saw those people outside, and my son, my 16-year-old son, said, what if they break into the building? And all the grown-up police officers were like, kid, come on, like, mm -hmm. you kid. And since then, to me, I thought of this whole experience of going to talk to these people is just a therapy, but why did you do that? Why did you want to hang Nancy Pelosi from a lamppost? Let's talk about it. Now, you didn't succeed. Sorry. <laughs> um, I know that you feel like, you know, your mission wasn't accomplished, but it's still part of the, you know, part of this film is about the therapy of trying to make peace with all of that, which is exactly what you did so well with your film. Mm. Well, we have something similar too with our films. So much of the subject matter in your film and the conversations does revolve around political violence, specifically with your mother. I mean, the shit that some people said about your mother, the names they called her, the things they wanted to do to her. You, I, I sort of viewed it the same way as when I went to the prison to talk to the killer. I, I had to be a director of a film. I couldn't just be the angry husband of a murder victim. 
And people would, leading up to that were like, are you, you sure you want to do this? Can you do this? Whatever. I never wavered for a nanosecond that I could compartmentalize it the way I needed to. But I, I, when I was watching your film, I'm like, God, how were you talking to these people as intimately and connecting with them as you did when so many of them wanted to cause harm to your mother? Like, was there moments when you wanted to just reach across the room and go, wait a second, that's my mother you're talking about. Did you, in that room, just like, I'm Alexandra Pelosi making a film? And that's what I'm focusing on. I'm not Nancy's I'm daughter. I'm just trying to understand them. Just trying to understand the why. I think the hardest part about your confrontation in the jail was that in a movie, just like in the conversation we're having here about life, you want uh, closure. And he wasn't giving you the closure you needed. Or maybe he was. I didn't think he gave the closure that I needed for that film. For you... You want, in the script, in the Hollywood version of our lives, we get this beautiful closure where he breaks down in tears and says, I'm sorry, and let me tell you why, and then you hug, and you all live happily ever after. Somehow there's some moment where it all clicks, and unfortunately, we don't, we don't get that. Well, for the record, I didn't go in. That wasn't my goal. I don't believe in closure. I wasn't looking for closure. For me, the goals were twofold. One was to humanize Adrian for him. Because all he knew of right. her was this screaming woman coming at him in English, policia, 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 fearing for her life. That's it. That's all he knew of her. So I literally sat with him and showed him photos of her life. I made him go through. And, and if you watch the film, you see his reaction. Like he sees a mother, he sees a daughter, he sees a sister, a, a, a wife. The other thing was we never really understood what happened that day. And he told a story that day that was very different than when he was arrested in his confession, which was a total bullshit story about her going downstairs and slapping him and calling him a bitch, complaining about noise. She never left her apartment. And then at sentencing, he told a bullshit story too. So I didn't go in. There was never going to be a hug. There was never going to be that, that restorative justice moment for me. I wasn't searching for a new friend. I wasn't searching for him to be a part of my life. I was like, this is who you killed. And... Now tell me what you actually did. I didn't need closure in the sense of once this film is done and this interview is done with this guy, I somehow emotionally will be able to move forward with my life in a different way. So the film was more satisfaction and gratification than it was therapeutic and of a closure nature. And for you and your film, I don't know exactly what was in your head when you were planning the film and developing it in pre-production and what the ultimate goal was, but I think it was to show a human side of these people. And that came through. Like, none of us really knows any of them on a human level. And that's why I think your film was so important. Thank you. Thank you very much. And so your dad, he's doing well? Yes, thank you. Okay. But we're looking at the trial. The trial's coming up. With the, mm -hmm. So, you know, we're, we have that too. Mm -hmm. um, that's a little bit like a, you know, the light at the end of the tunnel that ends up being the train, mm -hmm. no? Yes, a, a final stop or one of the last stops on a train that is not very pretty. It's not a great ride, you know? So I, mm -hmm. I wish you and your family the best with that. And my absolute last question is, I, I just need to know, what was it like growing up with such an uninspiring slacker mother? I have news for you. She was a slacker mother. I doubt when that. I knew her. I doubt she that. was a stay-at-home mother mm. who drove carpool and made homemade Halloween costumes and won the 
cake off at the local, you know, at the school bake sale. She didn't go into politics until I went to college. So this whole like empty nest syndrome thing is why she is, when people say she's too old, I'm like, well, you know, she had to spend her first act raising five kids. So she's making up for a lot of years where she had to be that stay-at-home mom. So I think that's what it's all about, you know? Women are on a different clock than men. Maybe that's, you know, a lot of people say, oh, well, how come people don't say that about Mitch McConnell or Chuck Grassley about their age? Um, she gets lumped in with all these old people. I'm like, yeah, but you know what? She had to do this whole other life first. As a as the woman, you have to mm-hmm. stay home and take care of the family. No one ever says to men, who's taking care of your kids right now when you're in Congress? So, you know, the women have a certain extra burden. So ironically, it is funny for my sisters. We, oh, we are sort of looking at my mother as this. We never had that kind of, you know, person that you see. That's not who we knew. We knew this lady who, you know, was just a mom. So it is a total disconnect for us. Well, it's, that's a whole other podcast. Right. Yeah. And, and people say to me, like, you know, oh, your mom's a sweet old lady. And I'm like, yeah, you live with her for 64 years. But, um, <laughs> but that's funny. we always see our parents differently than others see our parents. And I'm just going to go on record and say, your mother is a ninja. And in the darkest moments of the Trump administration and saw her walking out of the White House that day with those sunglasses, with that <laughs> fuck you attitude. And that meant a lot to people like me because knowing she was there, knowing that she wasn't going to take his shit at a time when somebody needed to stand up to that monster. So she's, she's an ninja. Alexandra, this, is, this has been an amazing conversation. You are a brilliant filmmaker. I know I speak for a lot of people when I say I look forward to your next films. And uh, thank you for coming on. And hopefully you'll Thank you so much for having me. Come back. You and can edit, help. right? You have the power to edit, right? Can't you just like edit me to sound really articulate? You have no idea what I'm going to do to you in the editing. Perfect. Thank you. Don't thank me yet. <laughs> I don't care. As long as it sounds like, you know, I give I'm myself, making sense. I give myself too much credit. It's going to be very hard to not make you sound great. So. Thank you. All righty. Take care. You too. This episode of The Back Room was edited and produced by me, Andy Ostroy. It was co-edited and co-produced by Maddie Rosenberg and co-produced by Jen Hamoud. Our theme song was composed by Andrew Hollander, and our logo was designed by Cricket Langell. And special thanks to Patricia Wind. Please take a moment to rate and review the podcast, and also follow or subscribe. Until next time, keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards, and have a great week. Music